The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by actor and author Minnie Driver. Over the past 25 years, she's been a force in films like Circle of Friends, Big Night, Goodwill Hunting, Gross Point Blank, Owning Mahoney, and motherhood. She's also done excellent work on television in everything from Will and Grace to Modern Love. As of late, she has two new projects. The first is called Mini Questions with Mini Driver. It's a podcast in which she poses seven big questions inspired by the famous Proust questionnaire. If you're so inclined, I went on her show earlier this year. You can listen to that wherever you get your podcasts. Before you jump into mine, Listen to her episode with Viola Davis. It's really, really excellent. And then you can listen to mine. I, I just want to come second to Viola. Speaking of second, her other endeavor is this beautiful new memoir called Managing Expectations. It's not your traditional tell-all. It avoids the trappings of most memoirs, which often move from one year to the next in painstakingly granular detail. Instead, Minnie has assembled a series of essays, full-hearted dispatches, from moments of transition and turmoil. She captures both the inflection points of her life and the memories that continue to linger at age 52, the mother of one. After all, the book, and really this episode, is ultimately a love letter to her late mother, Gaynor Churchward, 
We talk about her a fair bit in this conversation, but before we get into it, some context here. We've been taping these episodes again in person for the last couple months, which, by the way, is much better than sitting alone in my closet staring at a Zoom. But one thing that tends to happen when we're in person is that my guest will inevitably notice the stack of notes by my side. Sometimes this happens in the middle of the episode, sometimes it happens after the taping, but in this case, it happens right here at the top. The moment Minnie Driver walked in, she noticed something on my desk. And we normally cut this part out of the episode, but as you'll hear later on, this Esquire interview from 1996, which I had printed out from their archive, is a key part to understanding Minnie Driver's story. So, with all that, why don't we jump in? What is it? This is something from the New York Times. This is from Esquire of 1996. Oh, Jesus fucking Christ. I'm in my knickers. And now your arms crossed. And It's okay. Body language is really a myth. I don't think so. I wonder if I was doing that because you just showed me a picture of me in my knickers. Definitely. That's what oh, it was. Yeah. You were, of course. You were like, oh, God fucking damn God that. damn it. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Mini Driver. Nice to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. How are you feeling? I'm okay. I got my leg stitched up a few days ago, but what I realized was it was totally worth it. Like I was doing something I love. I was surfing and I connected with the fin of my board on a really excellent wave. And I've been thinking about the payment, the literal pound of flesh. I do think you have to pay for one's time here in certain ways. Physically, you have to pay? I think in all areas. And you just have to be ready to remit payment when it happens. That's how things get balanced out. And you don't get entitled and full of assumption. Michael Lewis has this thing I like. He says, those who are lucky have a debt to pay for those who are less lucky. I do agree with that. Maybe that is a version of privilege, huh? Mm-hmm. But I also remember when I was younger, there were always girls who'd have boyfriends who'd like buy them cars. Is that what you wanted? I had nothing. Like I lived like I lived above my dad's garage. Like I never had a boyfriend and I never had a car. <laughs> and then I did when I got a second I got a shit, shit car for my eighteenth birthday, which was the best thing ever. But like I honestly was friends with girls who would have like like they felt like they were so lucky. And I felt like such a junkyard dog. But also like that there was going to be something triumphant in that. But I knew it was never going to be easy. And that was completely true. So before this journey kind of starts, your parents meet in 1962. Yeah. Your father, his name was Ronnie. He was a financial worker. Your mother, Gaynor, was a model and a designer. You come along in 1970, growing up in both London and Barbados. Now, your parents never married. They lived in separate homes. But of your childhood... You have this quote. You said, my attitude was, there is abundance. There is abundance when you have no money and are eating canned soup in an unheated apartment and an appreciation of the finer things when we did have money. What was that bifurcated childhood like? It was odd. It was odd to move from a lot of money to hardly any. But you get used to anything as a kid. That was the oscillation in mine and my sister's life. 
I felt a little bit shameful sometimes when I go back into my dad's life and he'd have girlfriends who'd say that, you know, we were sort of unwashed and unkempt. And I remember feeling shame when I really should have gone, well, what do you fucking expect? Like, I've literally just come from a house that has an outdoor toilet. And now here I am in this fancy hotel in London, like, that you can't expect me to make some sort of Superman transition on the train, you idiot. <laughs> Did you say that? I wish I had. I, I mean, I really do. But we definitely got used to it. But it was hard. It was really weird having your dad pick you up in a helicopter from like like the Village Green, which is sort of like a community area, like in this tiny bumhole town that I lived in with my mom and my sister. And my dad would sometimes come and pick us up. And then, you know, we'd be made fun of. And it was awful. So he would land in this small town mm. in his chopper. Would he have any sort of guilt about the conditions that you were in? No, because... There was quite a lot of animosity between him and my mum when she left him, which was because I think they really loved each other and each wouldn't do what the other one wanted them to do. What did each other want the other to do? Mum wanted him to leave his wife and marry her. And after 16 years of him saying that he would and he didn't, and he wanted her to remain his eternal escape, to just be happy in this sort of gilded cage. 16 years. Yeah. When I read that description of your mother in the book, it reminded me of the Shirley MacLaine character in The Apartment. Mm, that's not a bad comp. A working woman waiting for the man she loves to leave his wife and family. It's pretty awful. Like, when I think about it, I mean, I didn't know about that until I was 12, and I still didn't really understand what that meant, that they weren't married. But there's a lot of shame when you think about the pain, like, having been cheated on myself and left in relationships. I know what his wife must have suffered through knowing that he was with somebody else. I mean, it's awful. Did any of it feel off to you growing up? No. You get up, you eat food, you go to school. My dad was sometimes around, sometimes he wasn't. You seem like a child who was always asking questions. Yeah, I was. But remember, we had the sort of the security as well of this nanny who really was like a sort of Julie Andrews style, like this amazing, and my mum and dad and all of their, like whatever they were doing, they were off all around the world. And she was our kind of constant, which is what made it even stranger when mum left my dad with not much announcement. And we arrived at this broken down cottage in the middle of nowhere when I was six. And she was like, isn't it great? This is where we're living now. And my response was, no, this is utter shit. Like, what are you talking about? Go and live here. And who's this bloke you're with? But it's, it's amazing how kids, how kids fit themselves to what is, you know, their lives. You don't really have a choice. In order to retain custody of you, wasn't there a court order that said she had to get a home, she had to be married, she had to have a job? We were made wards of court, not being married in 1976. You had no power. It was virtually illegal. The way that the judicial system cheated her and said, you know, you have to be married and you have to have a home that you own and you have to have these kids in school if you want to retain custody of them and you, can do, you have to do it in seven weeks. So they knew, they knew it was impossible. So they set this impossible task and, of course, my mom was like, okay. And she did it. But we didn't know any of this. I mean, I wouldn't have understood because we really did live in this totally different world, this totally different bubble. And then 
we just arrived in this landscape. It was like arriving on the moon. (laughs) And she had made all these accommodations and you had no idea why she was bending her life. No, we arrived at this cottage. This dude pulled up in like a shitty Volvo and got out and put his arm around my mom. And I was kind of looking at this nude paradigm. It's like, oh, what? She's with him now. Where's my dad? He was like a husband for hire. Well, I think they've been having an affair. They've been having a relationship. And I think she said, we got to get married. And she was, I mean, drop dead gorgeous. I mean, in the way that she looked, but also the way that she was, she was so charismatic and amazing. And for sure, like, she could have walked down the high street of the little town and just been like, oh, are you? Are you married? No, great. Meet me at the registry office in 10. You know, she was like that. (laughs) Did you and your sister at all resent her in those early years when you moved to a place that you didn't like away from the life that you had? I don't think when you're a child, like a little child, the need for your mother comes first. I don't think I could resent her. She was the God person. I resented him. I needed for her to remain a God. Mm, That's always a dicey proposition. I know. I mean, who wants that much responsibility? She certainly didn't. I don't. Do you? Well, here's the thing. I am a god. <laughs> I am. A, here's the thing. No, I am a goddess. Because I am, obviously. I, I went into motherhood knowing how my child was going to look at me. And I'd be lucky if they looked at me. And that, that was a huge responsibility. And I took care of that. But I also took care to, to explain to him that I was human. Because I was not, in fact, a goddess. And that that would be a gentle explanation and that we could explore like what that was. But I understood the figurehead that I was. And that's what I think my mother didn't ever understand, was that she was this unfathomably powerful force in mine and my sister's life. This was a force that kind of pushed you to go to this private boarding school yeah, called B-Dales. It was here that you had these remarkable English teachers that taught you about character and story Do you think they helped form the earliest foundations of your acting? Unequivocally. They were where it began. From virtually the day that I arrived there, I remember in the first week that I was there, I was encouraged to devise a play with my friends. What was was the play? All I remember is that I wanted to be the narrator. I didn't want to be in it. I'd been listening to Orson Welles telling the Peter and the Wolf and then the Oscar Wilde stories. So yes, that school fashioned 100%. It was never separated. Reading, writing, acting, English and drama were never separate. As much as you seem to enjoy the school, it sounded like you had this tendency to always run away. Mm. What is this? The thing about running away is you have this idea It's the place that you need to get to. And within that place is the healing and the redemption of all the problems in your life. That's what the existential idea of running away is. It's actually not to get away from the place that, for me, it was to get to, which was always my mother. Even when I would get to her, when I would run away and I would get back to her, there was just this incredibly normal response. There was no nirvana there. There was no, it was just my mom jangling her car keys going, I want to take you back. The jangling of the keys, that's the passage I love from this first chapter. Would you mind reading it? Yeah. That's not to say I don't run away some days. I take off 
and wind up back at the cottage. But even as I hang over the garden wall trying to catch my breath, there isn't anything there for me. I watch my mother see me through a window and stand in the doorway, jangling her car keys, pointing for me to get in the car. I can viscerally feel that the part of her I want, the part that would wrap me in its arms and steady the world again, is gone. Or rather, being used to forge this new life. Our agreement on what would make this life happy had bifurcated, and we both now drift on our separate tiny islands of need. Hmm. God, that, I mean, that actually is exactly what it was like. It's almost like you wrote that. <laughs> God, I, oh, she was such a creature, my mum. She really was. And it, the thing maybe you realise about your parents, like they really, or she really did, it was the best that she could do. And the fact that it fell short is not really the point. It's like we fall short as humans. That is just built into us. All I wanted to do was to be by her. And yet me being by her was going to ruin this relationship that she had to make work with this man. We couldn't find a middle ground. That image of her jangling the car keys, it's so vivid to me reading it. I wonder, did you know then as a kid that this was the beginning of you forging your own way? No, I didn't know that. I didn't realize how much I did it in my life. I'm not kidding until I wrote the book. What do you mean? Well, I didn't realize how much I run away but really make a success of running away. I wish we can give you a medal, but I just didn't bring him. <laughs> it gets a really bad rap running away. Like, I don't, it's so funny. Like, it really does. It has this incredibly pejorative flavor to it. And when I really think about it, actually, it's just going, looking at the thing that you're experiencing and going, no, I am going over that. <laughs> I'm going to seek something else that is going to make me feel better. That's it. There are many occasions in which you run away throughout this book. We're going to get to some of them. But before we do that, I want people to know you, nine years old, participating in what I believe is your first audition, mm -hmm. singing a Barbara Streisand song. What, which one was it? I sang Evergreen from the movie A Star is Born. Love, fresh as the morning uh, one love that is shared by two I have found with you which is to say I sang it like a male chorister when I was nine because I didn't know what the fuck she was talking about you were auditioning for a kind of protest song about a tree that was going to get cut down no it was a protest musical they were going to build a, a bypass of this freeway that was going to come and cut through the grounds of the school and it was going to radically alter the environment. The environmental impact was huge, but also the impact on the school was just going to be massive. So these teachers wrote this amazing musical that the kids then performed as a protest and it garnered a lot of local attention and it actually really was instrument in staving off the building of this road for 13 years. A local news program called... Nationwide comes to the sight of this tree. You climb up the tree, start singing the song. Mm -hmm. It goes well enough for them to halt the production of a of an overpass. <laughs> well, I'm laying it out nicely. You really are. I mean, I'd love to think that it was just it wasn't. It's just you. I had the solo that was on on the news, but obviously, like the whole story of these children, it was the late '70s, so we were still in like 
protest land, like protest decade. And there was something incredibly cool. Also, it was really good. It was really well written. It was, And we all played the instruments. How do you sing and climb on the tree? How are you doing both of these things? We have to remember, because this is the tree that I used to run away I would go and hide in this tree until they stopped looking for me. And then I would try and make my getaway back to where I live. So this is a full circle moment. It's why I so wanted to get the part, because I knew it was I was literally saving this tree that was saving me. It sounds so hokey, but it's true. So anyway, I knew how to t- climb the tree real fast. And it was giant. It was this beautiful, it was a 500-year-old oak tree. It was so beautiful. So I shinned up it, and there was this wonderful, great branch that you could sit on. And I sat on the branch and it's just hilarious. They panned up my Bob Seger type teacher who was playing the guitar with like his shaggy hair and his big handlebar m- mustache. And then across, like up my little scabby knees, up me, like crazy, wild, insane hair and this gale, full blown gale. And I was just white knuckling it on the branch, singing the song that they wrote called They Said It Was My Tree, a suitably melodramatic lyric. And that's, that's what I did. And I did it on the news. Well, in the book, reflecting on this first big performance, you write, I cannot separate the powerful feeling of affecting change with being acknowledged as a performer. Understanding the conflation of responses, both my own and others, will be a knot I will struggle to unpick for the rest of my life. What do you think that means? <laughs> well, as the writer of the book... <laughs> Acting was never empirical, like it was never this thing, this desperate need to like be famous and be known. It was so inspired in this incubator of this school and realizing that I was really good at it because I loved it so much. I loved working on a text and being directed and rehearsals and the practice and then the performance and the sharing. And I still love all of that and what that puts into the world, like however pretentious it sounds and you know, as actors talking about putting good stuff into the world, I don't see their function other than that. Put good things into the world. Share that. You know how to articulate emotion. That is your currency. Do that. Do that well. But somewhere along the way, like what fame does and what the expectation of Hollywood or the people around you when you start making money for them or for yourself, you get hauled off the path of the intent to just share this good thing and that that's your function in this world. And suddenly you think you're way more important than you actually are. I've just thought for so long I had to stay famous and I had to be, I had to stay at the top of this mountain. But I never interrogated, like, what on earth do you think will happen if you don't? And then of course you don't, because it's impossible to stay there. And you actually need ebbs and flows. But it's so extraordinary to begin with something that is that is pure and unadulterated, that has to get co-opted and corrupted. And then you're really lucky if you come out the other side of that going, it's okay, it's okay that I wanted a more shallow version of it. It seems like the first time that corruption happens that you were alluding to is on the heels of your eight-week shoot on Circle of Friends. The shoot took place in Ireland You're back home in your father's apartment. Mm -hmm. You write, the wind had dropped, the sails drooped, and the doldrums looked like they stretched to the horizon and even beyond. All the momentum gathered in making Circle of Friends seemed to have disappeared. And in this sort of fallout, you have a series of commercial auditions that I want to sit with for a second. 
Let's start with the first one. It's an audition for a piece of chocolate candy. Yes. So where you'd go for like most commercial auditions would be Soho. So you were always above some sex shop or a strip joint. It was like this kind of great, amazing neighborhood. And you'd go in and you'd always see girls that you knew who were auditioning for other things. And I remember going in there, you know, there was this particularly sort of rabid feeling in the room. And people were reading sides and I didn't really know what it was there for. And I got called in. And in this room, it was just full of men. There were probably 20 men with their suit jackets off over the back of their chair and then a stool in front of all these guys and this like weird ashtray full of chocolate bits and the idea was this incredibly disinterested director was like we want you to just sit down on the stool and we want you to eat a piece of the chocolate and you've seen when harry met sally the orgasm scene in cat's deli we want you to have an orgasm while eating the chocolate and then we're going to do it a second time I want a bigger orgasm, and that's for the Netherlands market. <laughs> so funny, isn't it? It's like, well, the Dutch need a bigger orgasm. Everyone knows that about the Dutch. Come Jesus on. Jesus Christ, what they do now. You're 23 years old here. Yeah. The audition begins. I know it's wrong. It's something that happens when you, you know that you have the attention of men, and it's crossed over from any kind of intellectual appreciation and just purely into like a carnal metabolizing of, of you. And there's a weariness that a woman can feel with that of like, here we are, okay, oh, it's this. As they all just leaned slightly forward in their chairs and leered, this is me eating chocolate, pretending to have an orgasm with the promise that I will get a job out of it, you know, as a professional actor. <laughs> but really, you're just lunchtime entertainment for this ad agency and their mates who they brought with them or whatever it was. You know, being aware of that as a young woman and doing it anyway, because you knew the expectation was that you played along with the rules, that you did it in order to get the job. You knew it was wrong, but you did it anyway. Uh-huh. I did the first orgasm. It was really much more like I was kind of discovering a hernia. <laughs> and then, because also this chocolate was so disgusting. It gummed and glued my mouth together so you couldn't really like make a proper sound. I don't know if I ever want to have an orgasm again after this. I'm so sorry for ruining orgasms for you. So by the time they wanted me to do it the second time, actually I think it was really, I was really helped by just how disgusting the chocolate was that I could definitely then go, no, I'm not going to do this. And they were like, what do you mean? I'm not going to do that. And I do remember I'd, I had worn my good coat, like I had one good coat. And because all those men were in all of those chairs, my coat was on the floor. And I do remember then suddenly just feeling so ashamed that I put my beautiful coat on the floor and that I'd faked a bad orgasm for all these revolting men. And that also I was made fully aware that I was going to be sort of marked as difficult. Because you didn't do the second take. And called them out and said, this is just, this whole process is disgusting. And this chocolate is disgusting. <laughs> And then, yeah, and then they call, you know, the ad agency then, or the casting director, then they call your agent and they go, you know, she's a fucking nightmare. What a nightmare. And so then suddenly that is out there in the universe. Like you said no, and that is the payment for saying no, which is why so many women don't. You get punished for it early enough that you think, God, if I, if I stand up for myself, either I won't work or I'll be excoriated or I will be an outlier. It's really interesting, like that kind of cultural manipulation recognizing it as a cultural manipulation. Can I ask you, how does one keep going? 
the same way as a, as a child. How do you get used to things that are really painful? Because you go, oh, these are the rules. These are the rules of engagement. Not, I should try and change this. Not at all. It's like, these are the rules. I want to do this thing. It turns out that in order to do this wonderful, pure thing that I'd done at school and before and this wonderful feeling of expression and being an actor, there were these rules that went along with it as a woman. You know, you pay to play. Because I wasn't ready to stand up and be some sort of revolutionary and, like, not get work. But the weird thing is, is that that stuff comes out at the seams anyway. You have a couple more commercials here. One is for dog food. Interior, Soho, day, a windowless room above a strip joint. I guess I'm the board director? You're the board director. Okay. Right. Uh, You're standing in a field of cows. They're going to be dog food. They look delicious. Mm, uh, And action. Mmm. Dog chum. It's so beefy. (laughs) (laughs) That is... Okay, the next one here, this is a deodorant commercial. Interior, Soho, early evening, a windowless room above a sex shop. Board director, once more. And you're on the bus, you've had a sweaty day, you reach up for the strap to hang on to, and oh no, giant sweat ring on your blouse, how embarrassing, action. Hands up if you use sweat guard, hands down if you don't. Did you get these jobs? <laughs> Do you know what? I got the deodorant commercial. I could see it. It was so good. That properly, that was amazing getting that commercial. <laughs> you eventually do graduate from these commercials. First by going to New York City as Circle of Friends is being released. You're meeting all these different casting agents in one office sitting with Ellen Lewis. I believe she casted Casino. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden while you're sitting with her, in the background you hear, She says, okay, I'll be right back in one second. I need to go to the other room. And this is where the passage picks up in your book on page 150. I heard her go into the office next door, yell briefly at whoever was in there, and then all was quiet. In the silence of this kind stranger's office, I felt the reawakening of the idea I'd had in Uruguay. I can be anyone here, and no one would know, because I have no imprint here at all. Who will I be? I was struck by the familiar, now slightly vertiginous feeling I got when I realised it might really be the right time to ditch all of who I was and start again. Immediately feeling guilty about having so little loyalty to myself, I stared out the window and was soothed by the anonymity of all the hurrying people on the street below. It felt so good to be a blank slate, I told myself. The block of marble with a statue inside, waiting to be revealed. Like the shouting... I politely ignored the statue already in existence. For people listening at home, Minnie just gave me a look that was, uh, how would you describe that? A little like, oi. I was conscious of pretty much all of it. I'm really going to absolutely just let go of that person that I was because how amazing to have the opportunity to be someone else. Not having any, like... I use the word loyalty in the book, but it's really like compassion and care for that person, which I think is part of running away. Watch me quite literally become somebody else. Do you think that willingness to give yourself over to the character Mm. was why it worked out so quickly for you? I think it was just like, this is the way the river's running. I do think it was just going, oh, oh, I can be this thing. Like they want this 
thin, tall, willowy, humorous person, like which I'd never been before. You weren't funny? No, I was. The sort of willowy and beautiful, the idea of being beautiful was complete anathema. Is that true? 100%. I was really just a really sweet, shaggy mess. My sister was the beautiful kind of sleek racehorse. I was a sturdier cart horse. So yeah, it was like, oh, they're actually saying that I am this thing. I will be that thing. And it does eventually catch up with you. Thank goodness. I'm glad I never did the surgery to maintain all the promise of that person or supposedly what that was. Before it does catch up with you, you do throw yourself into this field. Mm-hmm. You accept the blank slate. Mm-hmm. You do all these films. This is an Esquire article from 1996 on the heels of Sleepers and Circle Friends and Big Night. What's happening? Okay, first of all, I didn't have a publicist yet. I was six seconds from getting a publicist. But I'm standing holding the thing that I'm supposed to be wearing with my knickers showing and my tattoo, and I'm naked. I am naked, holding this thing up, covering my boobs, and you know, but I'm basically, you see my knickers, and it's not like the prop knickers. Those were not like fancy Dolce & Gabbana knickers. Those were just like my knickers from Marks and Spencer's in London. I remember the photographer going, the, the dress isn't working, take it off. And I was like, oh, huh? It's not working. Just take the take the dress off and just let's just do. Let's just just be free. Let's just just you know. This was a man or woman. It was a man. The only female photographer I ever worked with was Annie Leibovitz. Seriously. So yeah, I took the dress off and held the dress up, and then they took my picture and they put it in this magazine. And there was nobody stopping. That. That's what's crazy about it is that I thought that's what you have to do. What kills me about that picture is that those are my actual underwear. I wasn't wearing a costume. I wasn't protected by a costume. It's terribly sad to me. One that I did it, that also there was no one stopping it. They put that in a men's magazine, you know, and then I also agreed to it. It chips away at you because the same reaction that I have to that picture now, I think, I had then, which was, that's not right. The fact that those are your underwear, it's like you don't have the protective armor that a costume gives You just want to throw your coat around that girl's shoulders. Like, I really feel like that is sort of like oddly abusive, that picture. It's, I mean, not oddly. I'm trying to sort of sanitize it, but it is. Why are you sanitizing it? I don't know. It's 2022. I know. Don't sanitize it on my behalf. You don't even realize what it is you did until you kind of look back. It's so funny what that whole Me Too movement revealed was like, like the inadvertent stuff. Like I would have never have called that abuse until now looking at it going, oh my God, that shouldn't have happened. Shouldn't have taken that dress off and held it up to me. That wasn't about art direction or production design because those are my knickers. That that was not like, okay, now we're going to change into the thing, mm-hmm. this next. And it is revealing and we've all discussed that beforehand and like, is it going to be an amazing photograph and you're fully aware of what you're doing. But rather in that moment, take off your clothes the inability to say no because you don't want to stop the train. The idea that you'd want to be on that train, you know, and then the guilt that you feel about that. That's the dilemma that I imagine you've had to wrestle with. Even in the process of getting goodwill hunting, didn't you have some interaction with Harvey Weinstein who, who felt a certain way about you? Oh, yeah. It was funny. I ran into the Carrie Bardem, who was the casting director on Goodwill Hunting, a few years ago, and like we sort of were remembering that story of his words, like, she's not fuckable. It's so brutal. He said that to you? 
He said that to the casting director and he said it to my agent. And they told me. But also they said it in the context of these other men are fighting for you because they want you to do it. I mean, you can see how it's like it's fucked up. It's like, I take my clothes off. Is that going to make me attractive? This revolting producer who has all the power. Should I take my clothes off more or should I take them off less? Like, what am I? This person is telling me this thing and yet my compass inside is telling me something else. The compass that wouldn't do take two of the chocolate ad. Yeah. Or like the person who just loved, who loved acting and who loved, who loved making things, you know, interested in like creativity. Well, when we return, why don't we talk about that creativity and just some of those films you made through the 1990s? We'll be right back with Mini Driver. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle to everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. 
smart journalism, fascinating topics, words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. There's a scene in Goodwill Hunting that I know comes about as a kind of happy accident in which your character and Matt Damon's character are sleeping in bed. But the story of how this scene happens to me is kind of remarkable. You know, they were working so hard, both Matt and Ben. Matt was completely exhausted, and we were shooting this scene where we're asleep. I think it was in my dorm room. That was the set. And we were in Toronto shooting it. I was on a stage. And at lunchtime, Matt had gone and got into the bed on the set and had just fallen asleep because he was exhausted. And, you know, lunch ended and we were coming to shoot that scene. And Gus Van Sant, who's just a person of such integrity and style, you know, the first AD has said, oh, you know, Matt's asleep on the bed. And like, you know, I should go wake him up. And Gus was like, well, you know, hold on. And he and Johnny Viscoffier, who was the director of photography, they were like, well, why don't we just let him sleep? And Minnie, you just go get in the bed and here's what we're going to do. We're going to build a scaffold really quietly up above the bed and we're going to just shoot it from above and just let him stay asleep. I think we were like with each other at that point. You had been dating? Yeah, we were dating. We weren't going on any dates. We were just hanging out every day like with these beautiful words, like staring at each other and, you know, pretending to be in love and then actually being in love. Well, I was. I got into the bed and just whispered to him, to, you know, don't wake up, like, we're going to do this scene, it's fine. Just, like, all you have to do, like, I'm just going to riff and do stuff. And then, like, when you hear me say, I'm going to call, I'm going to call Chucky, I'm going to, like, I, I want to I meet your friends. All you have to do is just wake up and reach over for that and get the phone. That's exactly what we did. It was so organic. It was so lovely shooting that film. I bring that scene up because I think it does represent this kind of tenderness that you have as a performer and the fact that it came about in such an organic way holding your story it, it's complicated because this thing that you're talking about this desire to just want to act this very pure thing to just want to make something to have it get corrupted i wondered how you hold on to that instinct because there are those pockets where it's not being corrupted and goodwill hunting is a brilliant example of that we were left alone to make that film. You know, Miramax, so funny, like at the same time, they were shooting Jackie Brown. Quentin Tarantino was like Quentin Tarantino, and all the focus was on that movie. They were not caring about this little tiny film being shot in wherever, even though it was Gus and Robin Williams. You know, they were left to their own devices. We just, we made this thing, and it was so creative, and it was so pure that Matt and Ben wrote that and that they shared that with everybody. So we were just making this thing. And Big Night was the same. You know, that was this brilliant, amazing, wonderful idea executed so beautifully with lots of improvisation and lots of everybody showing up and just sort of bringing their humanity to it. And Gross Point Blank was the same. The script was thrown out like the day that we had the read through and heard that it wasn't where it was supposed to be. 
And John Cusack spoke to Joe Roth and said, just will you let us kind of improvise and try and figure it out and give us a week to do that. And then if you don't like what you're seeing in the dailies, then we'll go back. You went to a hotel in Pasadena and started mm-hmm. rewriting it? Either DVD Vincentis or Steve Pink would be on the computer and John. They would just be bouncing around ideas. And best idea won, and it would ideas would be shattered down, and it, they, that's how they figured it out. And I would throw in my two cents worth. There's loads of lovely improv in that, in all these films, actually, because it's real. And if you have a collection of actors who are interested in kind of making it better rather than saying more stuff, that's when improv really works. So there were enough of these good moments to kind of carry you through. A hundred percent. I mean, I love being on a set. I really do. It's, it's thrilling to me still. That other stuff, which again, I feel like there is payment in life. I feel like you have to pay for stuff. That there's definitely payment if you stand up and say, this is wrong. Whatever it is, you call out producers who want to see your nipples through a t-shirt. There was payment for it. It's really how you withstand that and whether you want to keep on, whether you want to keep on doing it. Of your 20s, you said... I was at my most fragile, crying a lot, the most cliched moment. It's a heady combination, fame and youth. It creates a hubris and all sorts of stuff that spins you out. Being in the middle of it, it wasn't easy to enjoy. Yeah. Do you wish you did enjoy it more? Oh, God, yes. I loved making the films. It was always like the post stuff that was awful. It was so not fun suddenly realizing that people would have a vicious opinion about certain things. And you're like, but I'm just like living and doing this this thing. Well, because most of the vicious attacks, they're not actually about the work. No. Everyone likes yeah. Minnie Driver, the actor. It's the fallout from your love life. Yes. So the media is theater and people get cast in different roles. Look at how particularly women how Britney Spears was cast in the sort of media gaze, how Jennifer Aniston was cast in the media gaze, like how you're presented as if it were truth. These things are happening to this person and this is who they are. But it's literally like it's a movie that's been cast. And I was, you know, alternately like the victim. And then I was biting the hand that feeds. The word I think I like least applied to women is outspoken. Mm. Like what is outspoken? Outside of what? Outspoken, I think, means just speaking. I think it does. I mean, I know it does. And yet, there is this pejorative quality to it. And furthers this idea about, about women having a voice. It's just a dead end. I won't have any truck with it. I actually got quite cross with someone the other day when they used it in a thing. I was like, look, you, got, you can't use that word anymore. That's not, it's a no-go. Let me scratch all my notes out. Yes, scratch that, just cross it out. (laughs) (laughs) I think part of it, at least in your case, in this narrow window of being an actor in show business, is that you're open to discussing things many people reserve for conversation at a party. You're willing to put that on record. And I do think it helps move the ball forward. But I wondered for you... Were you at all worried that your career would suffer? No, I think that was the problem. I didn't realize that that was rule-breaking within the paradigm. To simply be honest. Yeah. It was really interesting in like post-Me Too or current actual Me Too of, 
hearing from people who are now speaking up at this time when you were allowed to speak up and how it was kind of like, oh, now it's okay to do this. But before when you did it, you'll be crucified for it and it will impact your career. And I thought about that whole, the notion of the timeline mixed in with like really being happy that I was living in the time where it was now finally okay to talk about this was also just massive regret of going, God, I wonder if someone just told me to shut up, like if it would have been better. Like the equivalent of me wanting to put my coat around that girl in her knickers. Like I do wish I'd been around to sort of go, don't tell them that. Fuck them, they don't deserve that. I was thinking about how in the aftermath of all this, I think around 2001, 2002, you go to Hawaii Mm -hmm. and begin working on this record. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if there was a song on that album that one, you're still fond of, and two, reflects kind of where you were at. I think Deep Water, that perfectly describes that whole idea of the kind of the threat and the salvation. That which is terrifying is also healing. Can we take a listen to this song? Oh my God, are you really going to go? Of course, sure. that song we made it in my friend's garage you know that whole process was so great but i mean that song is like a bit dear diary what do you mean well it's just like a snapshot of like this moment of trying to articulate something about wondering if somebody is ready to be in a relationship with you and and or whether you're ready and wanting that are you ready for that rush again after so much rushing in my life and that idea of deep water again it's that thing that i said before it's both good and it's scary. The idea of being ready to fall in love again. Yeah. Early in the book, you describe yourself as someone who can fall in love in an instant. Mm. In your 30s, which is when this album comes out, did that remain true? Yeah. Unfortunately, it's like I ran away from, from Hollywood and ran into like a lot of relationships with people who like weren't in Hollywood. But it was kind of great. I mean, they well, ultimately, they ended painfully, but like, I don't know what relationships don't. Like, I don't write about the music in the book, it's funny, but we opened for Crowded House, like, quite extensively, and that was incredible, that whole experience of playing with musicians like that, and what that would be like, that even after the shows, everyone would sit around playing music, passing instruments around on a bus or, like, in wherever we were, and, like, that whole incredibly amazing creative experience so running away from one thing and getting into this other relationships with musicians and like music and surfers and surfing and this and I think it's always just trying to find the pureness of that creative experience Mm. so that's what's addictive to me is that feeling when you're making something it's like when you're laughing so hard and you're acutely aware that you are just having a really great time you're not laughing to cover something up or to get away from something else, but you're really laughing. It's like that. It's like loving your child. It's just completely irrefutable. But that is the creative process. What happens to you in 2008 when you have your child? Oh my gosh. I mean, 
it's amazing. But also, if you don't have a partner, so you don't have anyone else who's bringing home the bacon. <laughs> I don't know why you say bringing home the bacon <laughs> about something so serious. Bringing home the bacon. And maybe it's the accent with the bacon. Maybe. That was scary. And then this conundrum, like, if I, if I work to get money, I'm going to have to have a nanny. How will I afford that? How will I find a person that I'm willing to leave the most precious thing I've ever seen? But it's weird. Like, it just worked out. That year after he, Henry was born, I made Conviction and Barney's version. I mean, I loved them. But my barometer for success is different to other people. I had such a good time making those films. And, like, they were so embracing of my baby. I had to feed the baby like every like hour and a half, like two hours. Mm. And we would just stop. And I would take my 30 minutes to feed him and then we carry on. When you're raising Henry as a single mother, you and his father never married? No, Tim. No, we never did. Did you at all think about your mother in that process? She also didn't marry your father to care of you on her own? Yeah, like I crossed my arms when I was talking about that. I know, but what's going on? Well, because I think I did, except my mum stayed with the person that she didn't marry, the person that she had her children with. Henry was extremely unexpected. Like I really had been assured that I couldn't have children. What do you mean? I'd been told by a doctor when I was young that I had a what was equivalent to a U-bend in a toilet in my uterus and that I was very, very, very unlikely that I would ever get pregnant. So it was never a consideration. I didn't expect Henry's dad to kind of, I mean, they certainly not marry me. We weren't even really in a relationship. You know, but Henry was beloved by both of us. Love is love. You knew that it was the right thing to do mm-hmm. to have Henry. Mm-hmm. And yet you had to figure out a way to make it work. Yeah. But I feel like I'd done hard things. Like it's none of this ever came easy. Whether it's Harvey Weinstein saying I'm not fuckable, whether it's like public breakups that you're then branded as a victim, whether it's work drying up because you actively choose to leave the place that has proffered that work. I've done hard things, but you can always feel, like I said, that compass has never left me of going, I can feel when something is right. You may not know how you're going to create the revenue needed to be a single mother and not have that emotional or financial support. But I knew it would be fine. Did your relationship to acting change? Yeah. I mean, work did not define my life in the way that it had. I mean, it had to for different reasons, but it wasn't the be all and end all of like my, you know, you can't help but, you know, if you get your approbation from millions and millions of people liking what you do, there's nothing like having a child to go, golly, it's not that that stuff doesn't matter because it's lovely and it does matter, but. He's really funny and considerate and kind. He is himself. And I know that I've celebrated that. I do know that's what I've done well as a mother, is to celebrate the hisness of him. Do you think your mother celebrated the herness of you? Yeah, ultimately she did. She really did. What do you mean ultimately? Well, you know, my childhood definitely created like a schism where it was easy to leave, like it was easy to move with no antipathy, but like it was easy to move 7,000 miles away and start this whole new life without my mum and my dad. But my mother and I really, we worked through a lot of the stuff in our past and became such good friends. She always celebrated who I was. She was just busy sort of figuring out her own stuff. Mm. You know, everybody's pretty selfish in a way. You think she was? Yeah, I do. 
because I think she was trying to figure out her stuff because of the trauma and the, her own emotional package that she had to deal with. Which was? Well, the big headline in understanding why, I think why my mother stayed with my father and like why she did what she did was her mother died when she was 16 of a preventable cancer that was undiagnosed. She had an 18-year-old sister, a 17-year-old sister, and a 9-year-old sister. And my grandfather, six weeks after my grandmother died, married his secretary, who then summarily threw all the kids out of the house. They were sort of thrown out into the world. And there was this abandonment. She was always trying to reclaim her father. So she was busy doing that when I was a kid. And we came to understand, I came to understand that much later. I say it in the book, you know, once you've been through a few relationships that leave your head resting against the bathroom floor, you start understanding how, how hard it is, you know, how hard it would be to do that and have a bunch of kids. Something that struck me as you describe your final days with her, where she says to you, I'm sorry for being a terrible mother. That conversation, how do you sit with it now? It's like pieces of a fruit, like when you, when you quarter an apple. Because there's one part of that, of my mother saying I was a terrible mother that is the victim. Then there's a part of her that actually was a terrible mother. Then there's the part of her that is saying that as the bridge between us. It's always been like the conversation, like how do we speak about this? And then there is just the honest declaration that I was this and the okayness of laying out a truth that is hard, but that is real. And knowing that there's no... There's no judgment anymore around that. There was so much redemption and so much peace in those conversations that, you know, it's agony hearing your mother on her deathbed saying, I was a terrible mother and all you want to do is assuage that. She knew it wasn't true. She knew as I was lying there, just holding her hand, and we were just whispering to each other through this night that even if she was, it didn't matter because here we were loving each other. Our friendship and our relationship was just irrefutable. The love that she had for her children was so, so wonderful. So it was almost like an echo, like this past echo, hearing her say, I was this terrible mother. It didn't frighten me anymore that it might be true. I wasn't really worried that that was going to be her takeaway from this life. I knew that she needed to say it because it had, was an echo. But the echo finally rested there. It found its redemption in that moment. And it was really beautiful. Did it rest there or did the echo just... Sort of transfer to you? <laughs> well, depends how susceptible you are to, you know, a good haunting. Very. Speaking for myself. Yeah, no, I mean, me too, for sure. But it's funny, like those words, I'd heard them so much in my life, in all those different iterations that I said using my apple analogy. They don't hold the same weight. And I know that I am not a terrible mother. I know I am an absolutely faulted mother. I'm not a terrible mother. Henry and I talk enough about my inconsistencies or imperfections or those of humans and like what that, what that is and what that looks like that I hope one can kind of typicalize the faulted nature of being a human as opposed to going, oh my God, there's this one thing I don't really want to talk about because we all know that it's my, you know, it's my kryptonite. I say get the kryptonite out and I have it for dinner. <laughs> In your final chapter of the book, you move through the last two weeks with her. You do this by breaking them down into one day at a time. And this scene, I believe, happens on a Wednesday. It was the last Wednesday and she died on the Sunday. You have to see it to then feel how it connects. 
it being someone's end? Yeah, or the way that when you die, it's actually like watching someone be born into something else. Mm. I watched my cousin die. My cousin died of AIDS in 1995. And um, I, w- I remember thinking that then. It was like watching a birth, even though I didn't, I hadn't been through a birth. But then when I had Henry, after watching mum die, I realized they are so closely aligned. And that's where that, this passage came from. I won't interrupt it. No one tells you how birth and death are so closely aligned. Here, lying in the dark, I see it. Pain, a journey that goes towards only one thing, and the deep need to have someone with you to hold on to. Humans fret about and question what happens beyond the end, never about what came before our beginning. Closed loops, infinite human experience of beginning and ending, so deeply connected, only one instilling fear. I am not frightened anymore. We are on an adventure, and this is not some eleventh hour reach to spin death into a more palatable destination. We are together, this person who was my portal into life, this rare, funny, independent creature who would do the same for me, walk with me as far as she could, and then wave me off with love. Safe in the knowledge that life had equipped me. Oh, that's so stupid. I can't do it. say it like that. <laughs> Hold on. Um, okay. Then you wonder why my book is all mangled and wet. <laughs> God, she'd be so annoyed with me sort of sitting here sobbing about this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it right. We are together, this person who was my portal into life, this rare, funny, independent creature who would do the same for me, walk with me as far as she could, and then wave me off with love, safe in the knowledge that life had equipped me with everything I needed to meet death as the newest of my many experiences. God, I hope death is like that. It is like that, though. It is literally walking somebody to the very edge of something and then just waving them off, like, as, just with a huge goodbye, with a celebration, not sobbing and waving a hanky. That line, she walked me as far as she could. She waved me off. We started this talk with that image of her jangling the car keys, saying, I know you've run away, but I have to bring you back now. In some way, those two feel connected to me. They're just two different instances of someone saying, you have to go your own way. And she was the living embodiment of that. Because you do. You do have to go your own way. It doesn't mean you you have to be unkind or not compassionate towards other people, but it is you. You come in alone and you do go out alone. And if you're lucky, what survives of you is love. Are you okay? Yeah. Thanks, darling. I mean, I think it's always going to make me cry. I just think it always will. I don't really know who wrote that, because it's so exactly, it's such a distillation of what I meant. And I was so grief-stricken when I wrote it. I just can't believe that I actually managed to articulate it, and I'm so grateful that I did. Like, I'm so grateful to her, and to her. And thinking about your mother, and then those big seven questions that are the guiding force of your show. What relationship, real or fictionalized, defines love for you? It's so funny because if you asked me that at different points in my life, you would have a different answer. The archive for this moment is you have to define love with yourself before you can love somebody. That's the conscious answer. The primal answer is my son. 
the unadulterated, just pure, visceral love. That is Henry and loving him. But there's this other definition, which is the one that you have to take out into the world, and that is not this tender thing that I would not share with anybody, but the more robust kind of love. It's the love of self. It's really learning to really loving yourself and accepting all those warts and all of those pictures when you're in your knickers and you shouldn't have taken your dress off and all the shitty men that you dated and the terrible things that you heard about yourself in the press from girls you went to school with. I think you'd better figure out what your definition of love is with yourself in order to really engage with it robustly. It's the end of my favorite poem, which is a poem by Philip Larkin called An Arundel Tomb. What survives of us is love. It really is that. The shape, the first ghostly shape that you leave when you die is of the love that is there for you. Not leave behind, the love that you help create. I dedicate my book to my, my mother and my three English teachers. And Graham Banks, who is one of my English teachers, we were studying this poem when I was about 12 or 13. And there is a line in it about how the effigies of this knight and his lady on these tombs in Arundel Cathedral have been worn by time. And he was explaining it when I was like this kid. And he said, because one day you're going to grow up and you're going to fall in love and you're going to be lying in bed with someone and you're going to have your face so close to them that their face will be blurred. And I remember this moment, I can't even tell you, that there was Philip Larkin having the literal wearing away, the blurring through time of the effigies on this tomb. And here was this man going, but this is also like what love is. This is also part of love. It sounds inappropriate, but it wasn't. It was about love evolves. And that's what I love about this poem is that this tomb of this, this knight and his lady, time carries on passing around it, but love is what remains. You know, someone uh, much smarter than me said that any conversation about death inevitably turns into a conversation about life. Hmm. I think it is true. Because in the process of beginning and ending with your mother, we've talked about growing up in 1970 to now, all that she did for you, all that she meant. I never met her, but she's here. She'd like that. She was really very unsentimental about, about death. She was very pragmatic about the whole thing. I think to assuage some of the pain in that hospital room. Mm -hmm. You played uh, some Billie Holiday, I believe. Yes. I feel like we may need that now. I'm here for that. This is When a Woman Loves a Man by Billie Holiday. Kind of did make me feel some of the ways I feel in listening to Billie Holiday, 
which is uh, it's at once a reminder of why I'm happy to be alive and yet sort of ominous reminder that it all ends much too soon. Oh, gosh. Well, that's, that's, a, that's an amazing thing to hear. Any equivalency with Billie Holiday is amazing. I am learning to be galvanized and inspired by the fact that the clock is ticking as opposed to frightened by it. And I think those days or nights of being frightened by it, which I never experienced before until my mom died. You never did? Mm-mm. I don't know what I thought was going to happen, but it was not going to happen to me. Or it wasn't something I would think about. And it's so funny because you say it so often, time's short, you know, we're not here for very long. It was just completely hollow until she died. And now it really has meaning. And I kind of wish I could go back to not thinking about it in that way, but here we are. So what does that mean for you now, moving forward? It means being, even in the moments where I think I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing, the expectation that I have of myself is to be to be awake and grateful and just show up no matter what that is, no matter how apparently inconsequential, to experience it. Because that is the other thing. It is just purely experiential. That is what life is. The meaning is the meaning that we assign. And where it winds up, if you're lucky, is love. So that is not just how I try to live. That is how I live. I'm just getting used to it. At 52. Yeah, better late than never. That's what I was going to (laughs) say. To end on your mother. You had this conversation with her once and you said, I'm so sick of the grind. Nothing ever comes easy to me, as we've talked about. I always feel like, you know, it's such a grind keeping all the plates in the air. And your mother said to you, the grind. But I love the grind. The grind is why I get out of bed in the morning. You're right. But she is fueled by the idea that something is impossible. And what the journey is, is to either investigate its impossibility or making it possible. I will bend it to my will. That attitude, the way she sees life, with this curiosity, that is my only ambition now, to somehow be that, and to laugh as much as she does. Yeah, that's it. Well, I wish that for you. Thanks, babe. Minnie Driver, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. our show. Special thanks to Maggie Taylor, Aaron Kaufman, iHeartMedia, Rosie Money Coots, and of course, Minnie Driver. Her new essay collection, Managing Expectations, is available to purchase wherever you do your reading. We'll include the link in our show notes at talkeasypod.com. Once you're on the site, you'll find our back catalog of episodes, including talks with Kate Blanchett, Matthew McConaughey, Laura Dern, Steven Zoderberg, Questlove, Ocean Vuong, Margaret Atwood, Tessa Thompson, and Julie Delpy. 
To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. As always, the best thing you can do for this show is to share it with a friend, a family member, anyone in your life that you think may like the work that we're doing here. If you don't want to do that, just leaving us a few kind words on Apple or giving us five stars on Spotify is really the best way for new listeners to find the show. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Photos by Julius Chu. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Shiloh Fagan. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mila Bell, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with Pedro Pascal. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.